Five Red Herrings by Dorothy Sayers. In 1923, Dorothy Sayers launched into the world my first love, her aristocratic amateur detective, Lord Peter Whimsey. With straw-coloured hair, a beaked nose and a vaguely foolish face, Whimsey's a casual detective, helped enormously by his loyal valet Bunter and a very healthy private income. Sayers has this lovely account of how she used Whimsey to live vicariously. Lord Peter's large income I deliberately gave him. After all, it cost me nothing. And at the time I was particularly hard up and it gave me pleasure to spend his fortune for him. When I was dissatisfied with my single unfurnished room, I took a luxurious flat for him in Piccadilly. When my cheap rug got a hole in it, I ordered him an Aubusson carpet. When I had no money to pay my bus fare, I presented him with a Daimler double six, upholstered in a style of sober magnificence. And when I felt dull, I let him drive it. I can heartily recommend this inexpensive way of furnishing to all who are discontented with their incomes. It relieves the mind and does no harm to anybody. Whimsy was an instant success and has remained popular ever since, with frequent TV and radio adaptations bringing his charm and intelligence to fresh audiences. Following the success of Strong Poison, in which Lord Peter fell unrequitedly in love with Harriet Vane, Sayers published The Five Red Herrings in 1931, the seventh Whimsy murder mystery. The plot is this. Lord Peter's on, ho on holiday in Kukubri in southwest Scotland and on good terms with the artistic and local community there. When Campbell, an unpopular and quarrelsome landscape painter, is found dead in a burn near Newton Stewart at the water of Borgen, it seems he must have accidentally slipped whilst painting near to the edge of a ravine. But Whimsy is convinced the death wasn't accidental, and indeed an autopsy reveals that Campbell was dead before he fell into the burn. There are six possible suspects, each with an alibi of sorts, and all of whom had quarrelled with or had been assaulted by Campbell, all of them artists. The five innocent suspects are, of course, the five red herrings. What follows is an intricately plotted story as Whimsy and the police investigate the mystery, culminating in Whimsy's reenactment of the crime from beginning to end to show how it was carried out. But not everyone approved of the book. I cannot love five red herrings, declared an irritated blogger at the Wigtown Book Festival. This book will be appreciated wrote Spectator reviewer M.I. Cole in 1931 by the type of mind that goes on solving crossword puzzles forever and ever. Why the bad press? Well, for a start, the book doesn't feature Whimsy's stuttering romance with Harriet Vane at all. <clears throat> Indeed, other than Whimsy himself, there are few memorable characters. 
Instead, the book's characterised by immense and complicated detail about train times, routes, bicycles and moving the body, and the poor reader is expected to be well versed in the techniques of oil painting as well. Sayers wrote trenchantly to her publisher, Victor Golanx, No one falls in love, and every sentence is necessary to the plot. Much good may it do him. Not only does this mean lists of railway times and connections on every other page, it produces scenes set at drinks parties where characters earnestly discuss why they ought to have caught the 7.30 a.m. express from Dumfries rather than the ghastly 11.22. As Sayers critic A.J. Hall commented, though we've all been to parties like that, they don't tend to be either lingered over at the time or fondly remembered in retrospect. But Sayers had a deeper purpose in writing the book. It's actually a love letter to the Galloway region. Sayers and her husband, Mac Fleming, a Scottish journalist, first came to Galloway in 1928, staying at the Anworth Hotel in Gatehouse of Fleet, now the Ship Inn. From 1929, they rented a studio in the High Street, Kukubri, next door to the well-known artist Charles Oppenheimer, and became well acquainted with the artistic community there. Here's Sayers dedicating the book to Joe Dignam, the owner of the Anworth Hotel. Dear Joe, here at last is your book about Gatehouse and Kukubri. All the places are real places and all the trains are real trains, and the landscapes are correct. Give my love to everybody, and we shall come back next summer to eat some more potato scones. Sayers notes that whereas normally she invented a landscape to serve the plot, in Five Red Herrings, she's invented the plot to fit the landscape. Thinking about it, the book's affectionate descriptions of the countryside, its roads and trains, seem to me to stand in for that absence of real emotions which reviewers had noted. Take, for example, this extract from a long and evocative description of Whimsy heading west from Gatehouse. He passed through Gatehouse waving a cheerful hand to the proprietor of the Anworth Hotel, climbed up beneath the grim blackness of Cardenas Castle, drank in the strange Japanese beauty of Mossyard Farm, set like a red jewel under its tufted trees on the blue sea's rim, and the Italian loveliness of Curdle. The wild garlic was over now, but the scent of it seemed still to hang about the place in memory filling it with the shudder of vampire wings and memories of the darker side of border history. So why are maps absolutely critical to an understanding of the book? Well, because Sayers uses the Galloway landscape in two ways. As we've just seen, her lyrical descriptions conjure up the magic and mystery of the region. But she also makes it a fundamental part 
of each suspect's alibi, where you really need to know your way around the landmarks to appreciate what's going on. Here's Whimsy again, in a fairly typical extract, speculating on a suspect's movements. Just try to imagine this without any knowledge of the geography. There's nowhere much for him to go. He could go up to Glentrull, but he'd only have to come back the same way. He might, of course, follow the Cree back as far as Minigaff and strike across country to New Galloway. But it's a long road and keeps him hanging about much too close to the scene of the crime. In my opinion, his best way would be to go northwest and strike the railway at Bar Hill. That's about nine or ten miles by road. On a bicycle, he could do it, going briskly, in an hour. Or, as it's a rough road, say, an hour and a half. That brings him to Bar Hill at 12.30. Reading that, I got lost somewhere near Mini Gaff. Working out the solution to Sayer's puzzle requires a rigorous attention to detail infinite leisure, plus probably half a bottle of whiskey, and above all, a really excellent map. Interestingly, as Sayers specialists Geraldine Perriam and Paul Bishop have pointed out, Sayers herself stipulated that she would not have anything but the best, citing a book by a rival in which publishers Collins had furnished the author with the most mean, miserable, potty, small, undecipherable and useless map, scrimshanking, feeble and unworthy to the last degree. Possibly he drew it himself, but in that case they ought to have taken it away from him and given him something better. I look to you, she wrote to Gollanx, to allow me a large, handsome, clear, well-executed, generous and convincing map with a proper scale of miles and everything handsome about it. Whatever happens, we must go about ten better than the intolerable Collins. Golanks duly obliged. Their model, probably based on the Galloway and South Ayrshire Street of the Graded Road Maps, is more than sufficient for the casual reader. But it wouldn't be nearly detailed enough for the guilty party to plan their false alibi with. What would he have used? Well, the two most likely candidates are firstly a gorgeous 1911 cyclist's map of the region. Um, It's based on the 1906-07 Ordnance Survey edition. It's functional, though a cyclist with, at best, a three-speed bike might find the contouring detail limited. The second is a straightforward 1923 Ordnance Survey map. This is much more detailed and incorporates post-war revisions to the road and crucial rail networks. If you're looking at the website, you'll see I've highlighted in lurid purple on the 1923 map, the railway lines covering the region, since as the extract above makes plain, trains, planes and automobiles, together with the many stations and branch lines of the London, Midland and Scottish Railway, 
form a key part of the book. At this time, trains ran from Dumfries to Port Patrick, then the principal port for crossings to Northern Ireland, with branch lines going off to Kukubri and Whithorn. Glasgow trains came down the coast via Eyre and Bar Hill, intersecting at Stranraer. The line swerved south to avoid the granite mass of Cairnsmore of Fleet, which explains the apparently illogical route from Castle Douglas. Given the principal economic motive for the line was the direct connection to Port Patrick, it really wasn't profitable to duck down to all the coastal towns. So the line serves only those towns such as Gatehouse that could justify an outlying station. You'll find Sayers suspects leaping on and off trains at Gatehouse, Bar Hill, Castle Douglas, Dumfries, and generally con contributing significantly to the profits of the London, Midland and Scottish Railways. Sayers would have been familiar with Norman Wilkinson's iconic 1927 poster romanticising the region, and also with Charles Oppenheimer's gorgeous watercolour, which British Rail used in the 1950s uh, to produce a deeply nostalgic poster for travel to the region. And I think it's fair to say that there's a sense of nostalgia pervading the whole book, a sense that Sayers knows she's writing about a period that's nearly over and about a place on the point of change. It's there in the foreword to Joe Dignam. Please tell Provis Laurie that though this story is laid in the petrol gas period, I have not forgotten that Gatehouse will now have its electric light by which to read this book. Sayers pens a hugely affectionate portrait of Kukubri's artists, with the possible exception of the unpleasant character Gowan, said to be modelled on Hornell. But nevertheless, as her London-centred books make clear, elsewhere, surrealism is in full swing. Darley and Magritte live in a different world from Oppenheimer. Though the Kukubri colony seems to be thriving, Sayers is well aware that its days are numbered. Yet the book's a happy one. Warmed by Sayers' evident fondness for the region, her first-hand knowledge of the inhabitants and their occupations, the landscape and countryside, shines through on every page. The clear, accurate and affectionate descriptions allow one over 90 years later to drive, cycle or walk over each scene in the book, including the famous bicycle ride to Bar Hill. Yes, it's true, as one blogger commented ruefully, by the time you get to the end of Five Red Herrings, you'll have an extraordinary knowledge of how the little 1930s railway branch lines worked and how bicycles were ticketed through to their destination. But more importantly, you'll also feel you've spent a few days immersing yourself in this part of the Scottish countryside and in an evocative record of a time and place now long gone. <laughs>